The word of the Lord, according to Acts chapter 2. Peter, standing with the eleven, lift up his voice and addressed them. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and all of all that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He's poured out on this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. The text for our gospel proclamation comes from the text that I just finished reading for you and serves as the basis of our theme for the Holy Trinity, not just that one time, but all the time. Some years ago, there was a team of weightlifters called Muscles for Jesus that used feats of strength to share the gospel. The group of about 20 men, founded in 1976, worked as five teams made up of three to four members who visited churches, youth groups, and even public school assemblies. Big man Craig Lemley of the group told East Valley Tribune News, The ministry is committed to fight for this generation. If you come in and break something with your head, blow up water bottles, snap baseball bats, you are going to get their attention so you can get to the heart and that is where God changes lives. I've seen them in person and was very impressed with their strength. They really did bend metal bars, rip phone books in half with their bare hands, and they truly gave God the glory when they successfully completed their presentation. But I wondered, looking at the Acts of the Apostles today, if that's really the kind of power God's talking about in Scripture. I mean, this seems to be the go-to move for Christianity in the past 30 years or so. And I believe it started with the Christian coalition. In the early 80s through the 90s, they wielded immense power amongst the political elite and were even possibly responsible for a few presidents getting elected. At least those presidents thought so. 
That's pretty powerful. Then it moved into the church growth movement, which insisted God's true power was attached to massive ministries with powerful footprints in the community and stadium-sized sanctuaries that held tens of thousands of worshipers with massive appeal and, unfortunately, calculated diminishing of real hard truths. Powerful crowds, worship, and presence. And it even has a presence in the church today among some of our Lutheran brothers and sisters. Just the other day, one of my dear brothers in the ministry was telling me about a parishioner that wanted to know why we don't do the greater works than Jesus did, just like Jesus says we should in John 14, 12. Now, that's real power, isn't it? I mean, especially if Jesus said so. But the acts of the apostles keeps nagging at me, tugging on my mind, annoyingly hanging there in the background, talking about power as well. And I really think we need to consider it. Because if we get power all wrong, what's the point of having any power at all? So Peter gets right to the point in our lesson today. He said, that Jesus himself revealed his plan for the universe with power, wonders, and signs. Now, the signs are easy. I mean, how many times have the disciples, the leaders of the community, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees asked Jesus for just that? Give us a sign, they all say, to prove you are who you say you are. So we can easily define what Jesus saw as a sign, because he would tell us the answer to that very question with what he saw as a verifiable sign. And signs are simple, right? Stop, do not enter, no trespassing. It's a clear marker that clearly delineates what you are supposed to do, usually marked with the power of police enforcement should you choose to ignore it. So by and large, we obey signs. Oh, I know there's the occasional hippie or rebel that ignore the signs. Goodness, we even have that great song from the 60s by the five-man electrical band that takes issue with signs. But it did not change our culture, and for the most part, we reasonably understand signs as true and, at the end of the day, worthwhile. So Jesus and his definition of the sign that signified who he is and who he says he is, can be likewise trusted too. Matthew 12 says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Wow, what a sign, signifying Jesus' death and subsequent resurrection. And this is the key to his power. Christ's power does not look like the power of this world, and we should never trust worldly power over the true power of Christ. The true power of Christ doesn't come with muscle-bound athletes showing off their feats of strength. True power isn't in the ability to elect presidents or any other politicians. Power doesn't come from packing stadiums with people. 
Power doesn't even come from thinking Jesus meant we can do greater miracles than he could. The sign is clear. Power in God's eyes sprouts forth from a place that no one in this world would ever even consider powerful at all until he reveals its true power in his time. You know, everyone loves the triumph of a little guy against overwhelming arms. Whether it's the Louis Zamperini story, Unbroken, made into a movie. I don't want to ruin the story for you here, but go and see that movie today if you have not as yet. Well, the story of David Goliath we know from the Bible. We all love it when the little guy gets a win. One of my favorite stories comes from the movie Little Giants, when a lowly peewee football team was being motivated by their coach, played by Rick Moranis. He told them the story of how he would race his older brother down Cherry Hill and lose every time. But then there was that one time he finally won. And that was all he needed. That one time. When I was in college, I didn't have a car and I had to ride my bicycle everywhere. It was pretty funny when Marcy and I were dating. Either we would walk, ride bikes to our dates or she would have to drive. I didn't care. And I'm pretty sure she didn't either. After all, she drove the night I asked her to marry me. And well, y'all know the rest of that story. My, my bike was not real fancy. I basically took an old touring bike to college that my dad let me have. When I arrived on campus, I saw that a lot of the guys had these new fancy bikes that were super lightweight and engineered for racing. At the University Lutheran Chapel, they would tease me relentlessly about my clunky touring bike. And one in particular, Matthew, would race constantly, would const, excuse me, constantly challenge me to race. I knew it was impossible to beat him, so I always said no. But he never stopped badgering me about racing. So one time I finally broke down and said, fine, I'll race you back to the dorm. But you have to promise that even if you win, you'll never bug me about it again. He was so excited to humiliate me with his superior bike skills that he immediately agreed. Well, the beginning of the race went as expected. We both shot out of the parking lot of the chapel and pedaled as hard as we could down 16th Street towards our dorms. And as I fully expected, the racing biopace egg-shaped sprocket gave him sprinting ability my old touring bike did not have. And he quickly outdistanced me, giving me little hope of winning the race. Then he made a fatal mistake totally underestimating my willingness to take a risk in order to win. You see, he stopped his bike at the entrance to our dorms because of crossing traffic, believing I would stop with him and he would easily win the final sprint. You see, he believed I was reasonably minded and aware of the danger of the oncoming traffic and would stop like any intelligent, normal human being and wait with him. Well... He thought wrong. I saw my opportunity and ignored the risk shooting through the intersection at full speed, about 17 miles an hour, barely missed being pancaked by a car, and watched with glee when I saw his face register the tactical mistake he just made that cost him the race. And do you think I ever let up reminding him of my glorious triumph that day? Heck no! I rubbed his sniveling nose in at every chance I got. Matthew's a pastor in the LCMS to this day, 
And every time I preach this story, I call him and remind him to listen in so he still won't forget that I beat him that one time. Okay, so I'm a little obnoxious, but you all knew that. You see, the disciples in Peter, in a way, are a little obnoxious too. At least to the people who do not want to be reminded of that one time something happened that never happened before. That time that Jesus was born, from about four years before he was born, some have estimated that as many as 2,000 Jews were crucified, and who knows how many more by the time Jesus was crucified as well. And no one survived. No one escaped. No one rose from the dead after being confirmed dead by the soldiers on duty until that one time. And that was the time when Jesus showed us his real throne, his real power, and his real authority over everything in our lives. That was the sign that Jonah prophesied, which signified the sign of the power of life over death and the wonder we feel that shakes us to the very core of our being and knowing who we really are. And when we know who we really are because of what he did, we can't help but proclaim it just like the apostles did, every chance we get, as long as we can, so anyone who doesn't know it and doesn't believe can come to faith and be saved as well. Because we are the one saved, and because he died, and because he rose from the dead, we too will rise. Because the cross is his throne, his death destroyed any claim the devil had on our souls, and we can gaze at the heavens and wonder, knowing he rules in authority over it all. Not just that one time, but all the time. Amen. Now may that peace that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus always. Amen.